Would you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12? We're going to jump back into our series here in the new year, um, probably wrap up in time for Easter or something like that. Uh, but as we begin a new year, just want to, you know, throw out, I guess, the obligatory question, whether or not any of you have any, uh, you know, resolutions, uh, do some fasting, <laughs> uh, some exercising, uh, that kind of stuff. The, the new year is when uh, we, we, we tend to self-assess and we go, okay, I want to work on this, that, or the other. Um, it probably is not a surprise to many of you. It's a time actually when um, a lot of people refocus or, or begin to focus on their mental and emotional health. There's an uptick for a lot of people in counseling and, and therapy. Uh, their caseloads really tend to, to rise in the first quarter of each year. Uh, people come off of uh, a, a time of you know, celebration, come off of a time of uh, family, and, and they've it's not, not a surprise to most of us in this room. You come off of a time of a lot of complex emotions and interactions, and you kind of go, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling lonely, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling isolated, whatever. Um, and, uh, and, and so we start asking ourselves, like, why, why are we here? What am I about? What am I living for? That's a good question. Uh, and I don't know if any of you caught uh, last year, if, if you saw the Barbie movie, you know what song I'm talking about. A song by Billie Eilish. Uh, and, and the title is, um, you know, what is I made for? What am I made for? And, and it's just this, it's the most, it's the saddest, beautifulest song I think I heard last year. Um, if you're familiar with it, you know how it goes. If you're not, um, look it up and look at the lyrics as you, as you listen to it. It begins with these words, I used to float, and now I just fall down. I used to be above the fray. I used to be above the ugliness. I used to be above the brokenness. And now I just fall down. I used to know, but I'm not sure now. What was I made for? What am I made for? Uh, and then the song goes on to kind of document some more of that dynamic of longing for wholeness and, 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 a, and an aspiration for or this, this sort of childlike sort of existence, right? And then it ends by saying, I think I forgot to, how to be happy. Something I'm not, but something I can be. Something I wait for. Something I'm made for. Some, something I'm made for. She's not wrong, right? These, these lyrics are honest. They're, they're true. We are made to be happy, but we forget how. This isn't something that's isolated to the people out there, right? Like all of us in here can relate to this. We, we know, what we, you know that, that God's designed us for, for happiness and goodness, but we, we miss out on that. We fall short of that, and, uh, and we find that to be true whenever we start using our our bodies in ways that they weren't made for. Whenever we start, you know, using things, you know, in ways that they weren't made for, especially when we're living sort of independently of the one who made us. What did he make us for? How do, how do, how do we find happiness? Well, it's probably not a big surprise. What Hebrews is going to show us here is that happiness is found in living the life 
that God, our maker, created us for, and we were made for holiness. We were made for, for Christ-likeness. We were made to be like, to imitate our Father in heaven. So um, give your attention to these verses in Hebrews 12. I want to read verses 12 to 17. This is, this is God's word, so let's, let's give our attention to it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. You know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, as we start a new year, as we try to maybe reorient our own lives more and more to your kingdom, um, trying to live more consistently with what you made us for, um, just we pray now, show us more of Jesus. Show us, show us more of what you've made us for. We pray in his name. Amen. All right. Well, if you've got, um, in your bulletin, there's an outline. Uh, and, and if you find that helpful, you can see where we're going um, to be going here. I want to talk about disputed righteousness or disputed holiness. We're going to talk about polluted holiness and imputed holiness, the fruit of holiness, and then resolute holiness holiness. Um, and that'll, that'll kind of take us through these verses. Let's, um, let's look at verse 14. I think I, wanna, I really want to kind of hunker down here where it says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. D does that get your attention? Does that kind of make any of you kind of go, wait a minute, what is that? What is the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's actually a lot of debate about what, a, what, what, is the, what is the nature of that holiness that we must have in order to have access to God, to be in God's presence, to, to go to heaven when we die. Um, what, what is Hebrews talking about here? And depending on what tradition maybe you grew up in, if it's a Christian tradition or a non-Christian tradition, like no, no matter who you talk to, there's generally an opinion about what does is, what is a life that pleases God look like? And, and there can be not a little bit of dispute about the holiness or the righteousness God requires in order for us to see him. So for instance, some people are going to say, well, you've got to have a certain standard of ethical holiness in order to see the Lord. You know, and that wouldn't surprise many of us, and probably many of us grew up with that, with that you know, belief that, uh, well, really holy people are those who, who, who really take the commandments seriously, and they don't, 
Um, they don't cheat on their, their taxes. Uh, they don't speed. You know, they're so scrupulous that they don't even go up to get free refills, you know, when it's not free. <laughs> so, you know, ethical holiness is the kind of holiness you've got to have in order to see the Lord. Or some people are going to say it's sexual holiness. Like, we're really about using our bodies in pure and holy ways, and, and you know, nobody will see the Lord unless they're sexually holy. Um, you can go to other traditions, and you're going to hear a lot about spiritual holiness. You know, that, that in order to see the Lord, uh, in order to please Him, in order to stand before Him, uh, you've got to take your spirituality very seriously. Really holy people are the kinds of people that, that pray a lot, uh, they read their Bibles a lot. They, the, the only app on their phone is the ESV Bible app, right? I mean, that's how serious and how holy and how spiritual they are. Um, and, and that, you know, look, uh, those are all valid things. Like, we, we do want to practice spiritual holiness. We do want to practice sexual holiness and ethical holiness. And and you can go on, can continue going down, down the line, and then you start running into different camps of, well, what does, what does doctrinal holiness look like? Like here in our tradition, doctrinal holiness, you know, you memorize the Westminster Confession of Faith, and you read Reformed theologians, and God bless you. And you can go to other traditions, and they're like, Reformed theology? Heck no. You know, and, and so now we're, now we're looking at whole different traditions or, or, you know, um, lanes trying to go the same direction, but wait a minute, now we're disagreeing on what that doctrinal holiness even looks like. Same for like emotional holiness. You've got some traditions that are saying, if you want to be really holy people are the ones that get super excited about Jesus and they're, they're really demonstrable in their worship and they're full of joy and they're full of passion, right? And those are really holy people. They are really connected to God. And then you can go to other traditions where emotional holiness means that you have the fruit of self-control and you have your emotions under control so much so that you wonder if they feel anything at all. Like me. Anyway, um, you know, whatever. You can go into traditions that, that emphasize um, like social or, or political holiness, where really holy people are the ones who are caring for the poor, are feeding the hungry, are housing the homeless, and are voting for progressive candidates. Those are holy people. And you got other traditions where the holy people are those that are like one issue only, abortion, you know, is something we have to outlaw, and we're only gonna vote for conservative candidates. And you have entire traditions they're saying one's holier than the other. And then you get to other, you know, um, what, is, what is missional holiness? Like if you really want to be consecrated, if you really want to live a holy life, then you go into full-time ministry. You, you go onto the mission field or, you know, you go to seminary. And, and if you do it right, they'll even call you a reverend. <laughs> How about that? Do you get it? Like all of these different traditions of holiness and, and you kind of go, well, which is it? What, what do you have to to focus on in order to see God. And, and you, I hope I've made the case that this is an area where there's no small amount of dispute. Disputed righteousness. It's funny, all these different emphasis, but when you take them all together, it actually, hmm, it actually starts to, to, to build a composite image 
of a person who is holistically holy, a healthy holiness that isn't, isn't you know, um, like, a, like a buffet line, um, going back to our New Year's resolutions, right? If, if you are one of those people that said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to renew my Planet Fitness uh, or Augusta Health membership, I'm going to hit the gym, and God bless you, you've been there every single day for the past week, you're doing great. So, so let's just do a little thought experiment. What happens if we fast forward to May and, uh, and, and we'll, we'll talk about the person who is faithful and keeps that New Year's resolution. And can you imagine the transformation that would, that would happen in that man or woman's life who is in the gym faithfully from January 1 to the end of May, like half a year? What kind of bodily transformation would come over them? That would be remarkable, right? Well, now let me... Let me put a little asterisk there. What if, what if that person who's in the gym every single day going faithfully, keeping that resolution, what if, they're, what if they only were working one muscle group the whole time? I'm only going to work out my left arm. I'm going to do curls and biceps and triceps and forearm and stuff. And, and at the end of May, they come out of the gym with this hulking left arm and the rest of their body's like this. It's a little strange. It's a little, little weird. Something's off about that, right? We just know that. And isn't that the case with this sort of compartmentalized view of what holiness is? And instead, a healthy holiness is going to embrace every single part of our lives given over to God, consecrated to Him, this sort of well-rounded true and authentic holiness that the gospel is calling us to. Uh, but that then presents us with this sort of personal challenge because we know, we, you know, only a fool would insist, oh yeah, that's me. I'm that guy, completely holy, healthy, holistically pure and righteous. Because we fail. Like maybe we're, maybe we're doing pretty good in one of those, you know, buffet items that I was describing earlier. But in the rest of them, like we've just sort of chosen to ignore that for now. And then we're not going to talk about that because I'm, I'm failing. Our fallenness and our finiteness means that we're not holy. We're, we're not as holy as we want to be for sure. Uh, and this is why we have the, this sort of polluted righteousness um, uh, there's, there's disputed righteousness, and then when we're honest with ourselves, we're, our righteousness is polluted. Our holiness is not pure, uh, and sin is what pollutes those efforts to be righteous. So just as an example of that tension that we feel between the, the goal and, and what we experience, you can see it again in verse 14 that says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And you kind of get this impression sometimes that it's, if well, you have to choose between, at least in verse 14, one or the other. You're either going to strive for peace with everyone and sort of be a nice person. Be, just be a, a, you know, somebody who's not going to rock the boat, you know, somebody who's just going to get along with everyone. Or, you know, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Like, it seems like people who are really committed to holiness and purity, um, they're the ones who... Are, they're not always the most gracious person you run into, right? They're not always the most patient, the most understanding. They're kind of hard, got hard edges, kind of prickly. 
Or if somebody's going to be really, really committed to, to living at peace with everybody, that's the, you know, because that's what the Bible tells us to do. And, and they're going to be gracious, of course, but you sort of feel like in order to be gracious to everybody, you've, you've got to be really, really flexible with the rules, maybe even turn a blind eye to some things. Just, you know, well, we're not going to talk about that. How do you do both? We, we've got this sort of polluted righteousness that doesn't do either one of them well, except that we realize peace and purity in verse 14 actually are something that we're supposed to pursue together with 100% commitment all the time. And Jesus is the best example of this because he came to us as John's gospel describes, you know, the word became flesh, tabernacle among us, and we've seen his glory. And here's the glory of Jesus, that he was simultaneously full of grace and truth, of peace and purity, right? It's good to be reminded that truly holy people aren't rigid and mean. (laughs) They're not divisive and angry. On the contrary, holy people are supposed to be, in Jesus' words, peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They're the daughters of heaven. Right? Um, Peacemakers aren't looking for conflict. Right? They don't Go around looking for offense. They're patient and compassionate. At the same time, peacemakers aren't afraid of conflict. They don't avoid it. When they see something wrong, they care enough to get involved, get messy. And peacemakers aren't in it to just win the argument and prove somebody right. They're looking actually to reconcile those who are in conflict. Holiness looks like that. Holiness pursues what is good. It's full of grace and truth. It isn't partial. It doesn't play favorites. Why is this? Because God is a peacemaker. And this is why we're to strive for that kind of holy peace, that kind of peaceful holiness, that kind of grace and truth. And so, um, you know, probably a good place to just ask all of us, which side of the horse do you and I tend to fall off on? Because none of us do that well. We, we inevitably feel that tension between peace and purity, right? Between, oh, well, I want to be compassionate. I want to be a gracious person. So, I'm, I'm, well, I'm not going to tell you that you're gonna, you've got spinach in your teeth because I don't want to embarrass you. Or, well, no, I have to be a true person. I have to tell the truth. And so I'm going to tell you you've got spinach in your teeth. And, you know, and then you're walking around and you're ashamed the rest of the day. I mean, it's just hard. It's hard to do both. We, we, that's why we need what... Um, what God provides. Thankfully, the, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord is the same holiness that God just gives us as a gift. It's not something you and I have to manufacture and muster. This is what Paul celebrates in the whole book of Romans, but as he begins that letter in uh, chapter 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, um, if, if you have studied any church history, you know that Martin Luther 
really wrestled with these verses because on the one hand, he's reading about the gospel that's been revealed. The gospel means good news, and so he's looking for good news. And at the same time, he's reading about the righteousness of God, this righteousness that we need to have you know, in order to please him. And then he's going, how is that good news? It was a serious tension. It was a life-changing, you know, life-altering moment for him to wrestle with these verses because it's not good news. If, if the righteousness that's being revealed is the righteousness that God requires from us, but it is good news if it's the righteousness that God provides for us. And this is actually what, what Luther recognized, what the rest of the Bible was, was telling us, but you know, sort of the scales fell off for him. He talks about how he felt that he had been born anew and that the gates of heaven had been opened to him when he realized that what God had done was provided his son, Jesus, who would be the simultaneous sin-bearing substitute who would you know, die on the cross for our sins. We, we've heard about that. We know about that. But that's not all he did. He was a righteous representative. And, and the, all the years that he was living among us, one of us, a human being just like us, he was keeping the law. He was living the holy life, the perfectly holy, whole life that you and I can't live, he succeeded at. And that when, when we trust in him, when we believe in him, what happens is Jesus, yes, he takes our sins away, but he also applies to us, imputes to us a righteousness and a holiness that's his, not ours. And that God looks at us with the reputation of Jesus applied to us. That's this beautiful, good, wonderful transaction that happens at the gospel. That's what the gospel is. And that's what we believe in, right? And this is why the gates of heaven opened to Luther. When he realized, this isn't about what I do, it's about what Jesus has done for me. And the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent, to believe in Jesus. This is the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The, the holiness of Jesus that is imputed to us where we receive the reputation of Jesus. Do you have his reputation in heaven? Is that what you're trusting in? Is that what you've believed in? When, when you look at Jesus, is he just an example to follow or is he someone who has taken your sins away and has given to you his record, his reputation in heaven so that the Father regards us as sinless and shameless and beautiful and clean and pure and lovely. This is the gospel. This is the imputed righteousness, the, the righteousness, the holiness God gives us. Not that he requires from us. He gives us. And then what this does is it starts to, once we're justified, that's, that's the technical, the theological word for what happens when we believe in Jesus. Then he starts to sanctify us. And in between that justification and that sanctification is our adoption, where we're made sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. And um, J.I. Packer, he, he's, uh, if, if you're looking for, hey, what do I read in the new year? Can I commend to you his book, Knowing God? If you've never read that before, put that on your list for 2024. 
Um, in, in there is a chapter on our adoption as sons and daughters. And, and he wrestles with this question of, okay, well, if we're, if we're justified, if we're made righteous, if we're made holy simply based on the righteousness of Jesus given to us as a gift, then what's up with the law? Like, what's, what's up with all this talk about being holy? He says, many have found it hard to see what claim the law can have on the Christian. We're free from the law, they say. Our salvation does not depend on law keeping. We are justified through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. How then can it matter or make any difference to anything whether we keep the law henceforth or not? It's a valid question. It's something that I think we struggle with. We wrestle with as Christians. Like, what's, I know I should keep the law, but I don't quite know what the motivation is. Why am I doing this again? And if you don't know why, that's, it's hard to persevere at something if you're just kind of confused and you know, not really have a goal. So it may be tempting. In, ver- in Hebrews chapter 12, I, I can understand if you're reading that going, oh, good. <laughs> the, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Well, God just gave that to me so I don't have to worry about being holy anymore. There's a temptation to believe that. I get it. But that's not really all that Hebrews 12 is telling us. We certainly do need the holiness of Jesus, but we also need the fruit of holiness in us. And this kind of holiness is the result or the fruit of being loved by God, of of being his sons and his daughters, children of our heavenly Father who loves us. And because we love him in return, we want to honor him, we want to please him, his values become our values. His desires become our desires. We take on the family resemblance. This is what, um, I know we're just jumping back into Hebrews. We had the Advent series. And so what was the context again? What was Hebrews 12 about? Started by talking about this race and this endurance. We're running, it's hard. We're throwing off things that entangle and so on. We're starting, we're striving. We're, We're pushing forward for the finish line. And then there's this whole language about discipline and Verse 10 talks about how God our Father in heaven disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. So these verses that we're looking at this morning aren't out of context. This is a a broader discussion about God our Father pursuing holiness in us, wanting us to take on the family likeness. For at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later... It yields a pe- the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And that, that's kind of consistent with our verses here too, right? To those who have been trained by it. Um, if you're a parent, if you've had little children, maybe they're out of the house and grown up now, I don't know, but you know how parenting works. This isn't rocket science. Family likeness. There's just values and desires and priorities that, that are consistent in your family. Yeah, I know everybody's distinct and unique, but there are some things that are common denominators. And Mark, Mark Twain was a pretty good observer of human nature, and he was talking about parenting. He said children are natural mimics who act like their parents, right? Despite every effort to teach them good manners. Okay, glad you got that. Yeah, we're inconsistent parents, uh, and it's okay. We've got the, the righteousness of Jesus applied to us, but that doesn't mean that we just don't care and we slack off. We still want to pursue consistency and holiness. This is the rest of J.R. Packer's quote. He says, while it is certainly true 
that justification frees one forever from the need to keep the law or try to as the means of earning life, it is equally true that adoption lays on one the abiding obligation to keep the law as the means of pleasing one's newfound heavenly father. Law-keeping is the family likeness of God's children. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, and God calls us to do likewise. Adoption puts law-keeping on a new footing. As children of God, we acknowledge the law's authority as a rule in our lives because we know this is what our Father wants. And that leads us, you know, in conclusion, to to a resolute pursuit of holiness, a resolute kind of righteousness. Because we have it imputed to us and because we know that our own righteousness is polluted, but yet still we want to resolutely pursue this. This is what verses 12 and 13 we're talking about. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And this is just a reminder that holiness is hard. It's not easy. It requires exertion. It requires an effort and and a resoluteness. It's, It's not optional. Right? It's, it's, holiness is not some advanced de- degree of Christianity that, that only select saints pursue, like, hey, good for them, good for you, you got your holiness degree. No, this is for all of us, and all of us are called to grow in this. This is what earlier in chapter 4 of Hebrews, we were reminded, let us therefore strive to enter that rest, to, to see the Lord, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Um, Hebrews 11 gave us this long uh, testimony of the great cloud of witnesses who were showing us what faithfulness looks like. And and Hebrews 12 here in our passage gives us at least a couple of examples of like the opposite, not not the cloud of witnesses, but maybe like storm clouds of false witnesses. And you've got the people in verse 15 who um, it says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Like that's a possibility or we wouldn't be warned against that. See to it that no one fails to obtain this grace, that no one, that no one fails to, to, to see the Lord, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Hebrews does a lot of Old Testament references. This is one of them. In Deuteronomy 29, Moses warns God's people, beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe, like individuals or groups, whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And here's what that root says. This this is really um, sobering, okay? This is what the root of, of, of the bitter fruit would say. The one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. That's the bitter root. That's the poisonous fruit. The one who's presumptuous. The one who you know, kind of gives lip service to the gospel, but in the world, in, in, in his heart or her heart, is really turned away from God. 
and is living stubbornly. So no one should presume that they're safe if they are not sincerely, not perfectly, but, but genuinely, consistently turning from sin and to God. Otherwise, we're just, we're just playing games. We're, we're like the person who's saying, I'm stubborn in my heart, and they're not safe. So um, verse 16 gives us another example of a false witness. Um, make sure that, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is a, a reference to Genesis 25. And Jacob and, um, and Esau were sons, twin sons of their father Isaac. Um, and, and so there's this rivalry going on between them. Esau is actually the firstborn, even though they're born minutes apart. <laughs> you know, Jacob literally grasping the heel of Esau as they both, both came out of the womb. Um, so... So they've got this rivalry going on. And one day when Jacob was cooking stew, we're just picking up in Genesis 25, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Have you ever just been just so working so hard or come home and you, know, you haven't eaten all day and you don't care what, what's in front of you, you just grab that bag of cookies or that bag of chips and you just, that, that's your meal, you're so hungry. And he's exhausted and Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. And Jacob said, because now he sees an opportunity, sell me your birthright now. He, Jacob wanted the rights of the firstborn, which, which Esau had. And Esau said, I'm about to die of hunger, so of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Jacob and Esau were the sons of Isaac. Isaac was the miracle son of Abraham. And God had made promises to Abraham, and those promises descended to Isaac, and then those promises descended to Esau. But Esau despised his birthright, traded in all the promises of God for a Panera pick two. How many Christians kind of are living that same mistake that Esau made? Where we're indulging our hunger, we're indulging our lust, and we're trading in the pleasures of you know, the world for our birthright. For as much as the gospel comes to us with grace, it also comes to us with a warning. Don't neglect such a great salvation. Don't regard your birthright, your status as God's child as something cheap and disposable, as, as inferior, right, to the pleasures of sex or food. That's what Hebrews is warning us against. So what is your birthright? Let's just wrap up with that. What exactly is our birthright? What are you made for? What's God's purpose for your life? Well, you've been adopted into God's family. You have a heavenly father. You have the king 
of kings and Lord of lords as your heavenly brother, for starters. You have the hosts of heaven who are eagerly anticipating our presence with them around the throne to live in the new creation forever. In fact, you and I are part of that new creation even now. We are the first fruits and all of heaven is sort of watching this drama unfold. How are we going to live out our lives? How are we going to demonstrate the greatness of the gospel? How are we going to show the world a foretaste of what is to come? This is our birthright. You and I are going to receive an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, and it's kept in heaven for you. That's our birthright. Don't despise your birthright. We're about to come to this table. We're about to come to this table where we're reminded that God has brought us into his family. He's given us a birthright. And we're guests to be sure, right? Like none of us should imagine that we can just kind of come here on our own accord. But we're, we, 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 so we simultaneously don't deserve to be here. And at the same time, he's made you a son or daughter where you have every right to crawl up into his lap and to be with him at his table. Don't despise that. Rejoice in that. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks for this birthright um, that is ours because you're gracious to us and you love us and you're kind and compassionate and you're a peacemaker with us and you're also holy. You call us to be holy just like you are. And Lord, please help us to reconcile our, the righteousness you give us as a gift and, and at the same time the righteousness you call us to embody. Lord, that's what you've made us for. That's what's going to bring us genuine joy and, and happiness. That's what's going to give us purpose for our days. And that's what's going to set us on track for a new year. Lord, please help us to embrace this healthy kind of holiness a holistic holiness that isn't what the world expects, but is actually a better reflection of you and of your kingdom. Lord, uh, transform us as a church. Lord, please continue your work of grace and, and your spirit's transformation in our lives as we embark on 2024. And Lord, there's unique changes I know you want to make in each one of us, but we pray that they would be real changes nonetheless. Lord, we pray for our entire congregation, but um, as is our, our habit, we do want to select a few families, and we pray for Joe and Dawn Santana, and thank you for the, the holiness that you're working out in their lives and the holiness that you've given them uh, through the gospel. And we thank you also uh, that their son Peter and his family are, are back home, and we thank you for the, their faithfulness with MAF and the mission they had in Papua New Guinea. Lord, we thank you for the, the Sapsfords, and we praise you for Kyle and Laura, for Isla and Emrys and their new baby on the way, and we pray for your mercy to them, uh, your, your growth and holiness for their lives this year. We pray that for the same thing for the Sawyers, for Dave and Adina, for Ellie and Molly. Thank you for this family and for your, your grace to them. Lord, thank you for Jimmy and Kelly Sayer, and we pray that you would bless them and keep them in this new year and grow them in holiness too. Lord, we praise you for... Uh, for your mercy uh, to the sweets, uh, for little Juliana. Thank you for her safe birth and delivery. And we pray for your blessing uh, as uh, she grows in wisdom and stature and in favor with you. Lord, please uh, set your seal of grace upon her. Uh, Lord, thank you for all of the partners and ministry that we have. We thank you for RUF, Reform University Fellowship at Virginia Tech. Thank you for Heath and Jane 
for their family, for those that help them in ministry um, on that campus. And we pray for many of the students there to grow in grace and to, and, and to get to know you even for the first time, to become holy through the gospel and to grow in holiness through that same gospel. Thank you for, for Generations Hope, um, a ministry here locally working with uh, teen moms and, and pregnant um, teenagers, Lord, please continue to uh, provide for them and help them as they uh, disciple these young women and, and show them what they're made for, that they can be holy through Jesus, that they can pursue holiness through Jesus. And thank you for our men's ministry here at Tabernacle. Please uh, bless and direct uh, our leadership and uh, help our men to grow as, in friendships and help their, our men to grow in discipleship. Lord, we pray for um, victims of the Japanese earthquake recently and ask for your mercy to our, our partner churches in Japan and uh, the Chases and the Mirabellas and others uh, who are coordinating aid there. We pray uh, that many Japanese nationals would, would see the gospel at work, would see the holiness of your saints, their compassion, their love, their grace, and that um, many would, would come to know you uh, through that mercy. Lord, now as we receive more of your mercy through your supper, please prepare our hearts uh, to come to your table, to know that we actually have a right to this table, even though at the same time we know, we know we're guests. And Lord, would you bless us as we give tithes and offerings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.